around 1776, certain important people in the English colonies made a discovery that would prove enormously useful for the next 200 years. They found that by creating a nation, a symbol, a legal unity called the United States, they could take over land, profits, and political power from the British Empire. In the process, they could hold back a number of potential rebellions and create a consensus of popular support for the role of a new privileged leadership. When we look at the American Revolution this way, it was a work of genius, and the Founding Fathers deserve the odd tribute they have received over the centuries. They created the most effective system of national control devised in modern times and showed future generations of leaders the advantages of combining paternalism with command. Thus writes Howard Zinn in A People's History of the United States. This is Prof. CJ and I am, to paraphrase Samuel Adams, keenly doing my best to ignite the brush fires of liberty in the minds of you, the irate, tireless minority. And this is episode 60 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This will be part three of our overview of the American Revolution. This episode will cover roughly from 1776 to 1778. And if you haven't already, I highly recommend you check out the first two episodes on this topic, which would, of course, be episodes 58 and 59. By the way, as of right now, I'm planning on doing three more episodes on the American Revolution after this one. The last of which is going to be a reflections type episode where I'll explore some of the meanings and legacies of the revolution and war of independence as I see it. And in that one, I'm going to get in depth a lot more into questions such as was the American revolution really a revolution at all? But of course, these things will come up in various ways throughout the series as well. Howard Zinn's coverage of this period in a people's history of the United States, such as the quote I read at the start of this episode, raises interesting questions along those lines, especially in regard to this issue of, was the American Revolution really a revolution? Here's Howard Zinn regarding the rhetoric and the writing of the revolutionary uh, leadership of the pro-independence American elite. Quote, We have here a forecast of the long history of American politics, the mobilization of lower-class energy by upper-class politicians for their own purposes. This was not purely deception, it involved in part a genuine recognition of lower class grievances, which helps to account for its effectiveness as a tactic over the centuries, end quote. And one of those individuals that Zinn identifies as an example of this, as an upper class elite guy, but who was able to tap into middle and even lower class uh, feelings and passions, was the orator Patrick Henry. He was himself from the elite class in Virginia, but spoke in ways that the poorer whites could understand and that resonated with them. Zinn says this about Patrick Henry, quote, Patrick Henry's oratory in Virginia pointed a way to relieve class tensions between upper and lower classes and form a bond against the British. This was to find language inspiring to all classes, specific enough in its listing of grievances against the British, vague enough to avoid class conflict among the rebels, and stirring enough to build a patriotic feeling for the resistance movement, end quote. So think back to that um, segment of the famous Patrick Henry speech that I quoted from, I believe it was in the first episode of this series, episode 58. And Zinn also sees Thomas Paine, the famous writer of the revolution, as another example of this. Even though Paine was not himself from an upper-class background, but I think what Zinn means when he brings Patrick Henry up in this regard is that Paine's writing was also 
such that it could inspire and animate all classes of people who were pro-independence, regardless of whether they were upper, lower, or middle class. So I want to mention just briefly what pamphlets were and, and why they were so important during this time period. Pamphlets were much more available to the average person uh, than books. Books were still fairly expensive in the 18th century, but uh, pamphlets were, were generally made with cheaper paper, usually on a more simplistic printing press, and as a result, pamphlets could be uh, mass-produced on a fairly low budget. And pamphlets were absolutely everywhere in colonial, late colonial America and revolutionary America. Yes, books were surprisingly widespread and probably more so among the average people than in Europe, but pamphlets were what were really everywhere, pamphlets and newspapers. And pamphlets were generally longer than newspapers. They, they had lengthier essays and articles in them, but they were still quite a bit smaller than a book. And the way I like to think about pamphlets in colonial and revolutionary America is they were kind of like the internet back then. Now, a little more detail on what I mean by that. The internet is a place where the barrier to entry is extremely low. You can set up a blog or a Twitter account or whatever for free. And for a fairly minimal amount of money, you can set up an entire website with your own domain name. I know because I've done it. So like the internet, pamphlets were a, a relatively modest uh, hurdle to get into, to, to publish in. You didn't have to be um, a, a media magnate in order to publish your own pamphlets. Also, like the internet, a lot of the pamphlets that were printed back in the day were crap. They were not very well written, or they were kind of incoherent, or they were just, you know, plagiarizing other stuff without even giving uh, citations, and so on. And so, you know, th there was a lot of, in other words, there was a lot of BS and a lot of junk and a lot of unattributed uh, uh, plagiarism. So anyway, um, pamphlets were sort of like the internet minus all the pornography, or at least minus most of the pornography anyway. Most pamphlets that were cranked out during this time period being not very well written and not the greatest uh, quality or originality of thought quickly faded away and, and, and maybe end up as footnotes in some obscure history book at best. A handful of pamphlets became famous and had enough quality of content to become uh, sort of immortal and well-known, even to people only vaguely familiar with the period today. And chief among these, and, and the most famous pamphlet of the time, was Common Sense by the writer Thomas Paine. It's hard to quantify exactly, but it seems pretty much undeniable that Common Sense helped to change a lot of minds that were sort of still on the fence uh, in the American colonies towards outright independence. In this very radical pamphlet, Paine went far beyond what most people were thinking at the time, and in particular was one of the first to really get a lot of attention while openly attacking the entire concept of monarchy. And this was an important thing because one of the biggest psychological stumbling blocks in the minds of many people, both among the leaders and amongst the regular, regular folks, was an attachment to the person of the king and the institution of the monarchy. This is always a very big deal in any sort of a monarchy. There's always this tendency, and it's deliberately cultivated by, by the monarchs themselves, of course, there's always this tendency among people that even when they're really pissed off at the government, they, they don't want to blame the king. They always want to just believe that, 
you know, the king's basically a good guy. He means well, but he's getting bad information. He's got bad advisors, either either corrupt or inept or evil or some combination thereof. And then if the king just knew our side of the story and all of the, all of the facts, he'd probably be on our side. And so, for example, last time I mentioned the Olive Branch Petition, those who, who supported the Olive Branch Petition generally were of that mindset that, yeah, Parliament's been behaving like jerks and the king hasn't, hasn't been stopping them, but it's because the king doesn't really know our side of the story and what's going on. This is what I like to think of sometimes as the, uh, the, the Sultan and Jafar complex. If you've seen the wonderful movie Aladdin, uh, the, the Disney version, you've probably you'll probably recall that the Sultan, while kind of a little bit senile and a little bit of a goofball, not all there, was generally a nice guy who meant well. And why do bad things happen in the kingdom? Well, you see, it's because Jafar. It's because he's getting, you know, bad advice from one of his advisors who's, you know, putting him under some sort of trance, literally or figuratively, and, and getting him to do bad things. So this is an extremely common sentiment amongst people who have been born and raised and educated under some sort of a monarchy. And Payne lashed out with his pen in such a way that he seems to have in the minds of many people in America provided that last oomph by just totally discrediting the monarch and, and the entire concept of monarchy. People had a sentimental attachment to the king as, as a figurehead and an icon in a way that they didn't have uh, an attachment to parliament. So who was this guy, Tom Paine? Well, he came from very humble beginnings. He was the son of a poor corset maker in a small town in England. And throughout his, his youth and early adulthood, he always seemed to be in conflict with authorities in one way or another, whether they were governmental authorities or his boss or whoever. He, he was just one of these guys that, that always was, was kind of causing trouble or getting into trouble. And um, by the way, interestingly, for a man who later became known above all else as a great writer, he was largely self-educated. Repeated career problems caused him to leave England for America in late 1774 when tensions between the mother country and the colonies were really starting to spike. Um, and at this point, Thomas Paine was 37 years old. So it's almost sort of like a midlife crisis or whatever, you know, late 30s, completely changing his his life and moving to the other side of the world. Now, as a longtime radical and troublemaker and, and always a questioner of authority, Payne was from the get go on the side of the colonists who were um, angry at the government. He arrived in Philadelphia and managed pretty quickly to get himself a job as a printer and quickly began writing and having his stuff, his own writings published as well. In March of 1775, he had his first real hit with an article entitled African Slavery in America, in which he vigorously demolished all of the arguments that people commonly made in defense of slavery, and in fact argued in favor of Africans being just as entitled to natural rights as anyone else. And this, this got fairly widespread readership and had an impact at least in his own area, um, soon after this article was published, the very first abolitionist society in America was founded in Philadelphia. And while it consisted mostly of Quakers, Thomas Paine, himself a deist, whose uh, his father had been a Quaker, but he himself was a deist, uh, Thomas Paine was one of its early members. Now, just a month after he published this article about slavery, 
Lexington and Concord happened. And Payne's writings quickly began to focus more and more on this issue of independence. The colonies should get independence from the mother country. He even made some, some attempts, um, unsuccessful of course, to try to persuade some of his uh, Quaker associates in Philadelphia that it would be moral for them to take up arms in defense of liberty. And sometime in late 1775, he wrote a pamphlet, which he entitled Common Sense, and which ended up being published in January of 1776. And it was pretty much an overnight bestseller. In fact, very quickly, it became the best-selling pamphlet in colonial American history. It sold 120,000 copies within just three months. And that alone might sound impressive, but also remember, this is in, in a population, amongst all the 13 colonies, the population was only about 2.5 million uh, maybe a little bit over, but definitely less than 3 million. And I could be wrong, I teach history, not math, but by my very rudimentary calculations, I believe that in order to match it, a pamphlet would have to sell 14 million copies today. And think of how often you, you hear about a book selling 14 million copies. And not only were a lot of copies of Common Sense sold, but also people shared it with each other and parts of it were reprinted in various other publications and newspapers and things to the point that probably within a few months of it being published, virtually every literate person in America was at least somewhat familiar with common sense. And it was written in plain, straightforward prose by the standards of back then that while clearly intelligent and, and possessing a, a higher depth of ideas than typical of pamphlets of the time, uh, nonetheless, even fairly simple people who were just, you know, kind of basically literate, but not, not super literate could still understand. And clearly I think it had an influence on events. It's not the only factor, but I think it is a factor in why at the end of 1775, the Continental Congress still was nowhere near pulling the trigger on declaring independence. And yet by the early summer of 1776, it's, it's uh, ready to do so. In other words, I think this is a real example in history of the written word having a real influence on actual events. Interestingly, the first thing Tom Paine talks about in Common Sense is he distinguishes between society and government, which is a very libertarian thing to do. And it's something that people in favor of state power often do the opposite of. People who favor state power will often say, you know, society ought to have a say and blah, blah, blah. And what they really mean is that the state should. And whether they realize it or not, they're, they're conflating the state with society, which, of course, state and society are two very different things. Society is voluntary human interactions and cooperation and institutions, and the state, by definition, is not voluntary. So Paine begins common sense with the following, quote, Some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil, in its worst state, an intolerable one, end quote. By the way, and I'm not the first person to make this argument, I've heard it elsewhere, I just can't remember where, or I would happily give credit to whoever I first heard this from, but um, should be pointed out from the get-go, 
Payne makes um, an interesting, I, I believe, error when he says government is in its best state a necessary evil. Because I would argue that what is necessary, by definition, is not evil. And what is evil, by definition, is not necessary. So I would deny that such a thing as a necessary evil ever exists. But anyway, still, still interesting and important that Payne begins by making this distinction between society and government. He then goes on um, to analyze all sorts of ideas about where states originate and what they should do and not do. And in particular, like I said, a lot of attacks on monarchy as a concept in general and the monarchy of Britain in particular. So, for example, pointing out the um, actual origins of monarchy, he writes, quote, This is supposing the present race of kings in the world to have had an honorable origin, whereas it is more than probable that could we take off the dark covering of antiquity and trace them to their first rise, that we should find the first of them nothing better than the principal ruffian of some restless gang whose savage manners or preeminence in subtlety obtained him the title of chief among plunderers, and who, by increasing in power and extending his depredations, overawed the quiet and defenseless to purchase their safety by frequent contributions." And then he he goes on to say that while a king establishes his rule basically by just being like the the baddest warlord and gangster in an area, over time, the king then invents all this mythology and ideology to give some sort of high-minded legitimacy to his rule. And in the case of the British monarchy, he looks all the way back to William the Conqueror in the 11th century and the so-called Norman Conquest. He writes, quote, England, since the conquest, hath known some few good monarchs, but grown beneath a much larger number of bad ones. Yet no man in his senses can say that their claim under William the Conqueror is a very honorable one. A French bastard, landing with an armed banditti, and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives, is in plain terms a very paltry rascally original. It certainly hath no divinity in it. However, it is needless to spend much time in exposing the folly of hereditary right. If there are any so weak as to believe it, let them promiscuously worship the ass and lion, and welcome. I shall neither copy their humility nor disturb their devotion. Well, after attacking monarchy for quite a while and ridiculing the entire concept of it, Payne then goes on to specifically lay out what he sees as the advantages the Americans should gain from having independence from Britain, among which he sees free trade with the world as well as the ability to stay the hell out of European wars. Payne is like a very, very early American advocate of a foreign policy of isolationism. Payne writes, quote, I challenge the warmest advocate for reconciliation to show a single advantage that this continent can reap by being connected with Great Britain. I repeat the challenge, not a single advantage is derived. Our corn will fetch its price in any market in Europe, and our imported goods must be paid for by them where we will. But the injuries and disadvantages we sustain by that connection are without number, and our duty to mankind at large, as well as to ourselves, instruct us to renounce the alliance, because any submission, any submission to or dependence on Great Britain tends directly to involve this continent in European wars and quarrels, and sets us at variance with nations who would otherwise seek our friendship, and against whom we have neither anger nor complaint. 
as Europe is our market for trade, we ought to form no partial connection with any of it. It is the true interest of America to steer clear of European connections, which she can never do, while by her dependence on Britain, she has made the make-weight in the scale of British politics. Well, anyway, um, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and stop with the um, common sense references there, but I hope you get the picture, and I hope that if you've never read the writings of Thomas Paine, you'll go check them out. It's mostly very good stuff. I don't always agree with Paine on everything, but I agree with him on, on most of the kind of big picture things, other than, um, again, I would say that there's no such thing as a necessary evil. So you're left, if, if you agree with me that there's no such thing as, as a necessary evil, you're left to the conclusion that either government is not necessary or government is not evil. And I guess uh, you can decide which one of those you believe. Another thing that added push to the cause of formally declaring independence was actually something the British did very early in 1776. They began hiring German mercenaries to supplement their British army troops in North America. These are the so-called Hessens as they're known. And they get known by this nickname because many of them came from a German state called Hess, though many of them, to be fair, did not. But this just becomes like the generic term for all the German mercenaries hired by Britain and sent to North America. These are deployed to America beginning very early in 1776, actually shortly after the Olive Branch uh, petition. When the king rejected the Olive Branch petition, one of the first things that he did was start sending more troops to North America, and the Hessians were among them. Now, this move of sending foreign mercenaries into the American colonies really angered many Americans even more than just the British regular troops being sent over in increasing numbers. Because, you know, imagine how it looks to the people in America at the time. Let's say you're somebody who's been kind of on the fence about independence. You're angry about what the British government's been doing. You have been angry with them for a while. You still, like most people, though, are hesitant to take that last psychological step that those farmers took um, on April 19, 1775. You're hesitant to take the last step and say, fuck it. I've had it, done with this British government, it's over. So imagine you still haven't said fuck it, you're still kind of on the fence, and then you see the British government sending over not just more soldiers, but foreign mercenaries. Imagine if there was some sort of domestic disturbance going on in the United States, you know, in the, in the future, and not only was the U.S. government using its own military to deal with that, but also they began to supplement their troops with hired foreign troops. Imagine the effect that would have on the American people. So the Hessians angered and radicalized many Americans who were on the fence or who were lukewarm on the idea of independence. As Murray Rothbard puts it in Conceived in Liberty, to the Americans, the hiring of the German mercenaries was proof that Britain would treat them as aliens and foreigners, end quote. In the spring of 1776, the British finally had to evacuate Boston. Henry Knox, a self-taught military genius who had, uh, prior to the war, been a bookseller. He owned a bookstore in Boston and who was a self-taught, um, turns out, kind of a military genius, uh, succeeded in bringing these huge cannons. And it's quite an engineering feat. I mean, the, the vehicles that he kind of cobbled together and rigged up to drag these things over the ice all the way from Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York down to Boston. 
In early March, these big guns finally made it down to Boston, and they were placed on the Dorchester Heights just outside the city. In Boston, General Howe, who was now in command of the British forces, and whose troops had long been outnumbered by all the American militia that had mobilized after Lexington and Concord, now General Howe and his men were faced with not just being surrounded by more men than he had, but now having major big guns aimed at them from some commanding heights. And within a few days, General Howe decided it was time to evacuate from Boston and uh, remove up to Halifax, Nova Scotia, a safe, calm, peaceful part of the empire. Now, Howe had already been planning to move his forces out of Boston and ultimately to move his headquarters to New York City, which is what he ends up doing. But this speeded up his decision to have to pull them out of Boston in a hurry. So General Howe made a deal with the residents of Boston that if his troops were allowed to evacuate peacefully, and and he let this be known to um, Washington and and the Americans outside Boston through intermediaries, that if his troops were allowed to evacuate from the city peacefully, he would abstain from doing things like lighting the city on fire, from, from ordering the city to be burned to the ground. And so um, this, this sort of agreement held And on March 17, 1776, over 170 ships took the British Redcoats, along with about 1,000 loyalists from Boston, um, out and uh, ultimately up to Halifax. The British left behind them large amounts of supplies, which now, of course, went to the uh, growing rebel military forces. And naturally, this was seen as a huge victory And, of course, it helped to further spur the alleged leaders towards finally, officially declaring independence. So down there in Philadelphia, it looked like the guys in charge were finally getting to the point where they might be ready to maybe think about writing something real official sounding about independence and all that. Amongst the delegations to the Continental Congress, in general, New England and the South were the regions whose leaders leaned the most towards independence by late spring, early summer, 1776. And it was the so-called middle colonies such as New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware that were the most hesitant to take that final official step of declaring independence. However, even amongst the New England and Southern delegations, no one had yet made any official motion within the Congress for independence. And the the big reason for that was that none of the respective uh, rebel assemblies or congresses or whatever they were called in the different colonies had actually instructed their congressional delegations to make a motion for independence. And as quaint as it might sound to us today, these delegations in the Continental Congress actually paid great heed to not drastically exceeding or contradicting the instructions from the assembly or or. or Congress or whatever in their respective colony that had sent them to Philadelphia. 
But then in May 1776, the Virginia legislature told its delegation to the Continental Congress to propose independence. And it was a man named Richard Henry Lee, who was the great uncle of Robert E. Lee, who introduced the motion on June 7, calling for independence. The motion said that, quote, These united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved, end quote. Now, notice the very important verbiage here. The colonies are now to be referred to as states, by which they meant at that time politically sovereign and independent self-governing entities. And just in case there's any question what they meant when they referred to the colonies now as states, notice that the same resolution uses the same term, state, for Britain as it did for each of the 13 now former colonies. Very important. I'm not one of these people that believes that states' rights is some sort of magical blanket that protects all your liberties, but I am a stickler for historical accuracy, and it is just a fact that the, the origins of the United States are of plural, these United States, the United States in the plural, and that the entire concept was the states were sovereign and that the, uh, the Union, what later came to be known as the federal government, was simply a, an alliance or close confederation of sovereign and independent states that had decided to join together for certain specific purposes. And that's the historical fact. It's not a coincidence that these very educated guys chose the term state rather than province or department or some other term that would clearly indicate subordination to the central government. They chose state, which every educated Westerner at that time understood meant a sovereign political entity. John Adams seconded Richard Henry Lee's motion in the Congress. However, the motion had to be put on hold until July 1st because delegates from five of the colonies, most of whom were uh, the middle colonies, had not yet received instructions from their constituents. However, while they were waiting for this, a committee of five chaired by the Virginian Thomas Jefferson and also including amongst its members Ben Franklin, John Adams, Robert Livingston of New York and Roger Sherman of Connecticut uh, was set up to draft the declaration. Now, the main opponents of independence in the Congress who repeatedly spoke against it were a handful of delegates from Pennsylvania and New York, especially a guy named John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. Now, as far as I know, John Dickinson's main reason for opposing independence was that he was a Quaker as were many of the leaders from Pennsylvania, and as such, he was a pacifist. And uh, while I think, again, as far as I know, and I don't claim to be a huge expert on this, this individual, but as far as I know, John Dickinson was okay with the, the concept of the colonies being independent, but he could not bring himself to support the idea because he knew it would lead to war, and as a pacifist, he could not... Uh, personally take any action that would lead to a massive bloody war. Some political wheeling and dealing within some of the colony's delegations, uh, including, by the way, a, a, an arrangement to make sure that John Dickinson was absent from Congress on the day of the vote, 
resulted in a unanimous vote for independence on July 2nd. And I think New York actually technically abstained. So the vote was unanimous in favor with one abstention. It was 12 in favor of independence, zero opposed, one abstention. In New York, the reason why they abstained was that they still had, I think, not heard back from their assembly officially. So the vote within the Congress for independence actually passed on July 2nd. And John Adams at the time and after thought that July 2nd should really be when Independence Day was commemorated, because that's when the Congress actually voted for independence. Instead, what what is celebrated in America as Independence Day, July 4th, is when the text of the Declaration was officially approved. See, what had happened was the committee that had been set up to draft the Declaration were working, you know, on their own, the five of them drafting and redrafting for several weeks. And then after July 2nd, when the Congress itself as a whole voted for independence, they then took the draft that had been produced by this committee, and then the whole Congress went to work on it you know, making further edits and so on. And after much debate and redrafting, including uh, famously deleting a part of the original declaration that would have blamed the king for slavery in America, the final draft of the declaration was approved on July 4 and first proclaimed to the public on July 8. So again, John Adams actually had a point. July 2 was when the Congress actually voted for independence. The fourth was simply when they officially approved the final text of the declaration, which itself had been under construction and revision first by the committee and then by the Congress as a whole for several weeks. Now, when you read the preamble to the declaration, the main argument there is clearly inspired and derived from the basic ideas of the 17th century English writer, John Locke, especially the notion of natural rights and a contractual idea of government uh, to protect those rights, that the chief purpose of government is protecting individual natural rights, and that when a government no longer does that, and even worse, when a government becomes predatory on those rights, it is not only the right, but also the duty of the people to fix that government, to change it, to overthrow it in extreme cases. So clearly the preamble in particular of the declaration was inspired by the writings of John Locke and also more recently by the writings of George Mason, Jefferson's friend and fellow Virginian who had written something not, uh, I think just a few months before this called the Virginia Declaration of Rights and which contained very similar arguments and, and even very similar wording. This is what Murray Rothbard has to say in Conceived in Liberty on the declaration. Quote, Jefferson's aim in drawing up the Declaration of Independence was not originality of principle, but the framing of a succinct expression of the American mind, of the sentiments of the day, on the common sense of the subject. The document was indeed a superb epitome of the libertarian natural rights philosophy propelling the revolution, as well as the specific grievances that had aroused the American people. End quote. By the way, I mentioned a moment ago that there was originally something about slavery and laying a lot of the blame at the King of England for slavery's proliferation in the colonies. This is what Thomas Jefferson's paragraph on slavery from an earlier draft read, quote, he, meaning King George III, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, meaning Africans, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither. 
Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce, end quote. Now, as you can imagine, this paragraph was deleted primarily due to push from states such as Georgia and South Carolina, which were the two most ardently pro-slavery states at the time, even more so uh, than Virginia. But also there was pressure against this, uh, particularly the attack on the slave trade itself, the transatlantic slave trade, from certain Northerners, not all Northerners, some of them were were anti-slavery already, but there were some Northerners who profited handsomely from the transatlantic slave trade. A lot of New Englanders, for example, were heavily involved in overseas trade, and one of the most profitable parts of that would have been transporting the slaves themselves. Well, anyway, um, you can read the full text of the Declaration. You know, it's all over the place. It's one of those things like the Constitution or the Bible or a lot of other famous documents that a lot of people have opinions on who haven't actually read the damn thing. So if you've never read the Declaration of Independence, you might want to read it sometime and really think about it. And an interesting thought experiment, too, is to read the grievances you know, people are generally more familiar with the preamble than with the long list of of the long train of abuses, of, as Jefferson put it, the, the specific grievances against the British government. And an interesting thought experiment is to read all those grievances and then ponder how many of them the current U.S. government is doing as bad, if not worse, than the British government was in the 18th century. Or if it's not the identical thing, like the modern version of such By the way, I just want to mention, over two-thirds of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence had previously held some sort of office within the British colonial government apparatuses. So this uh, might be one of the things that might call into question the degree to which this is really truly a revolution. That said, in terms of just purely ideas, the Declaration of Independence, along with Tom Paine's common sense, were definitely revolutionary in this sense. Prior to these two documents, almost everybody, even ardently pro-independence people in America, tended to couch their arguments more often than not in terms of traditional rights, or they would say things like the rights of Englishmen. And after these two documents, Common Sense and the Declaration of Independence, got widespread, um, you know, exposure and readership, that sort of language of tradition and rights of Englishmen uh, faded away pretty quickly, became much less common. And instead, the default expressions of rebellion, uh, rebellious sentiments and that sort of thing was usually some sort of a version of universal natural rights, much more kind of enlightenment ideas explicitly than English traditional law or whatever. Just want to share with you a a quote from Howard Zinn from a people's history of the United States to give you perhaps a a more cynical view of the declaration as a piece of, of rhetoric and almost kind of propaganda in a way, not to say that the people who wrote it didn't believe it, but that when you look at it this way, it looks a bit different than when you you use it in the usual kind of almost quasi-religious mystical sense of this sacred text. This is what Howard Zinn has to say about it. Quote, To say that the Declaration of Independence, even by its own language, was limited to life, liberty, and happiness for white males is not to denounce the makers and signers of the Declaration for holding the ideas expected of privileged males in the 18th century. 
Reformers and radicals, looking discontentedly at history, are often accused of expecting too much from a past political epoch, and sometimes they do. But the point of noting those outside the arc of human rights in the Declaration is not, centuries late and pointlessly, to lay impossible moral burdens on that time. It is to try to understand the way in which the Declaration functioned to mobilize certain groups of Americans, ignoring others. Surely, inspirational language to create a secure consensus is still used in our time to cover up serious conflicts of interest in that consensus, and to cover up also the omission of large parts of the human race, end quote. And I find that, that a very interesting point of view on the Declaration. You know, it's not a, it's being critical of it or critical of its writers is not to say that like, you know, a bunch of upper class elite types back in the 18th century should have not been who they were and expressed the ideas that they had, but to just point out, look, here's an example, even in supposedly one of our most vaunted sacred idealistic documents, you look at it a certain way, you realize that it was at least in part a a, a brilliant work of rhetoric designed in ways we've talked about before in this series to um, kind of uh, paper over divisions, particularly within white society, and then to just, you know, completely write out of the question uh, issues of, you know, people like Native Americans, blacks, and so on. And of course, today we understand that the rights and so on uh, expressed in the Declaration were not actually applied universally at the time. You know, blacks, Indians, women, and even a lot of poor white males were just understood, you know, in an unspoken way, tacitly, to be exempt from those same rights at the time. But that having been said, the ideas, the words, the theory was there, and it was revolutionary, even if it didn't come fully to fruition or, or uh, to be carried to its logical conclusions then or at any time since, for that matter. Well, anyway, only 15 months after fighting broke out in Lexington and Concord, the alleged so-called leaders of the American Rebellion finally get around to writing it up officially. So we've got a Declaration of Independence. The problem is, it doesn't count, it doesn't mean jack-diddly-crap if the British succeed in reconquering the colonies and reestablishing their authority over them. In other words, it's going to take a lot of work, i.e. fighting, to make it stick. Work that, again, had been going on for over a year, but is going to have to get a lot worse before it starts to get better. most of the rest of this episode talking about some of the military operations from 1776 to 1777. First off, in June 1776, when Congress was still uh, dilly-dallying a bit about declaring independence, the British sent a force down to attack the South, and it was the American General Charles Lee who was sent down to take command of the forces defending the South from British invasion. 
And in these early days of the war, General Charles Lee was like a um, like Batman of America. He was wherever there was a real trouble spot. Lee would get sent in as arguably the most experienced officer in the entire budding American Continental Army. And uh, he usually did a pretty good job. And perhaps surprisingly, in light of his later falling out with George Washington, even Washington at the time admitted that Charles Lee was like, you know, Johnny on the spot. He's like the um, he's the guy you call in to a trouble spot when things are getting out of hand. And he usually does a pretty good job taking care of business. So when Lee arrived uh, down in Charleston, which was the, the most important southern port city by far, he found the American defenses there in really sorry shape. And he quickly set about work, work uh, trying to strengthen the defenses down there. And it was just lucky for him that some bad weather and some other snafus prevented the British from attacking Charleston for several more weeks. So that when they did finally attack towards the end of June, the defenders of Charleston were able to put up a strong enough resistance to fight off a British, British fleet and uh, prevent the British from being able to land any troops in Charleston. And you can find a lot of the famous founding fathers at the time saying great things about Charles Lee saving the day over and over again. Uh, George Washington wrote of him at this time, quote, he is the first officer in military knowledge and experience we have in the whole army, end quote. And lots of other headlining founding fathers, such as John Adams, also were praising Charles Lee profusely early in the war, um, somewhat ironic in light of what eventually ends up happening to Charles Lee. In July of 1776, actually right around the time Congress was finally voting for independence, British General William Howe arrived on Staten Island in New York with several thousand redcoats. And he was also accompanied by a British fleet commanded by his own brother, Admiral Richard Howe. The plan on the part of the British was to take New York City and to make it into the new British headquarters overall for North America. And they had good reasons to want to choose New York City as their new base of of overall operations. For starters, it's more centrally located, at least relative to, um, you know, previous to this, they they had been mostly based in New England because that's where the, the original trouble started. And they had this plan and they kept sticking to this plan for at least another year into the war of isolating New England. They had it in their head, a lot of the British generals, that if they could just isolate New England from the rest of the colonies, they could somehow uh, snuff out rebellious sentiment, and they, I guess, believed that New England was where all the trouble was coming from in terms of, of rebellious attitudes and ideas. And so I guess they thought if they could just reconquer New England through some sort of combination of of blockade and, and invasion and, and so on, that uh, New England would eventually submit, and that once New England submitted, the middle and southern colonies would just sort of stop being a problem anyway. No, I, I think all these ideas and assumptions were wrong, but just to understand where British strategy was in 1776-7, this was kind of the idea they kept coming back to. And key in their minds to cutting off New England from the rest of the colonies was the uh, sort of the Hudson Valley along the eastern edge of New York, running all the way up to the Canadian border. The idea was if they could just take control of that, that would cut off New England. And so that's why so much of the fighting in these uh, first couple of years of the war after independence takes place 
in uh, upstate New York or um, kind of extreme Western New England just across from New York. Now, other reasons why New York City made a logical place to to use as your headquarters, it has a very good harbor and also it had a much higher percentage of loyalists in its population uh, than did New England. Estimates are that in some of the middle states, such as New York, loyalists may have actually been close to half of the population. Now, when the British showed up, George Washington and his army were already there. They had actually been in the area since the spring expecting the British to show up. And on July 2nd, as the Congress was voting for independence, General Howe's army landed on Staten Island. The American troops who were there fled almost immediately. And the British found, to their delight, a mostly very supportive local population. General Howe waited on Staten Island for several weeks for reinforcements before finally attacking Washington's main force, which was on Long Island. On August 22nd, the British began landing on Long Island and skirmishing with some of the American defenders began. But the real battle of Long Island, as it came to be known, took place several days later on August 26th and into August 27th, 1776. And basically, George Washington got his butt soundly kicked and he was only able to evacuate his army because of Howe's hesitance in following up his uh, crushing win. In fact, General Howe often gets criticized by historians for being much too cautious. He was known to be somewhat sympathetic to the American cause, and he was actually an advocate of conciliation even after the war was rolling. In fact, Murray Rothbard even goes so far as to accuse him of treason to the British government by being so um, hesitant and, and restrained in fighting Washington's army. And Rothbard says that, This is really what saved the Continental Army at the time from destruction due to what Rothbard characterizes as Washington's total incompetence in these battles. Um, A more conventional historian who's much more pro-Washington, Don Higginbotham, by contrast, praises Washington's willingness to cede territory and cities when necessary in order to keep his army intact. So, You've got an anti-Washington person in in Rothbard saying Washington was incompetent in in this campaign, and it was just that Howe was deliberately hesitating and using restraint that saved Washington's army, whereas Don Higginbotham, much more pro-Washington, says, oh, no, 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 it's a a brilliant strategy on the part of Washington to strategically withdraw, right, to, you know, fall back. Now, after uh, some initial success, General Howe stopped his forces at Washington's main defenses, which were on Brooklyn Heights, and Howe opted for a siege approach rather than just storming Washington's defenses. Howe was blamed by some officers at the time and by many historians since for not being more aggressive, and many people believe then and since that Howe could have possibly broken the conventional army at this point had he just aggressively attacked Brooklyn Heights. Now, Washington, uh, facing this, this British you know, presence, this, this British, what was becoming a siege, Washington initially wanted to stay and hold, but he was actually persuaded by some of his other generals that his army was in danger of being totally surrounded and cut off due to the British Navy in the area. So on the night of August 29th to August 30th, Washington's army was evacuated via longboats to the island of Manhattan. In September... The British continued pursuing Washington through Manhattan, and the continuing pattern for this campaign and much of the first few years of the war goes like this. The British are successful, Washington retreats, 
and the British fail to follow up their victory in such a way as to really knock out or capture Washington's army. Now, the British successfully uh, fight Washington's army through Manhattan. Washington eventually has to pull out of Manhattan for the mainland. And for the remainder of 1776, Washington's army, for the most part, gets clobbered in one battle after another through New Jersey. And eventually, he has to pull across the Delaware River. In December, British General Howe hit the pause button. He did what they call going to winter quarters, which was typical of back then in northern climes. It was really difficult because of snow and ice and the transportation technology of the time to operate effectively in the dead of winter. So it was typical for armies to just sort of park themselves for the winter time. But again, critics of Howe point out that had he just, you know, gritted his teeth and pushed his army on through the winter, he might have been able to crush Washington's army at the time. Now, things looked pretty darn bad for Washington's army. They'd been beaten in almost every battle so far since the summer of 1776. Many of the militia were, for obvious reasons, leaving, and many of the short-term initial Continental Army enlistees were about to have their enlistments expire. And under these terrible conditions and constant uh, battlefield losses, who would expect many of them to re-enlist for another term of service? And it was in this atmosphere that Thomas Paine again lent his pen to the American cause. He wrote an inspiring piece called The Crisis that became widely read within the Continental Army. And this is the opening paragraph, and man, this guy could write, quote, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Britain, with an army to enforce her tyranny, has declared that she has her right not only to tax, but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound in that manner is not slavery, then there is not such a thing as slavery upon earth. Even the expression is impious, for so unlimited a power can belong only to God. End quote. Now again, it's impossible to quantify and measure, but it seems likely that these words and you can look it up and read the rest of uh, the piece for yourself, that these words did at least have an effect on some of the men in the army and uh, bucked them up a little bit. And there's a little bit of evidence of this given their next operation, which was finally successful. And of course, I'm talking about the Battle of Trenton in December of 1776. Now, when Washington found out that the Brits had stopped for winter, he, rather uncharacteristically for him, decided to break with convention and attack them despite the weather. So on the night of December 25th, Christmas night, 1776, Washington and his army famously recrossed the Delaware River back into New Jersey and surprised a contingent of Hessians, those German mercenaries, encamped near Trenton. Henry Knox, who was becoming uh, George Washington's chief of artillery, brought along 18 pieces of field artillery, which was a higher than typical number uh, for those days in proportion to the size of Washington's army. 
Now, aside from, you know, just the obvious big gun effect of artillery, there was another reason why uh, Henry Knox thought it was crucial to bring as much artillery as possible. And that was, it was kind of snowy, wet weather, and the flintlock muskets of the time would generally not fire in that type of weather, in snow or anything like that, whereas the artillery was much more reliable. Historian Don Hagenbotham writes this about Henry Knox, quote, the former Boston bookseller, convinced by his trek from Ticonderoga that artillery could keep pace with marching men, had built new and improved gun carriages that resulted in greater mobility for the cannon with Washington's army, end quote. Now, when Washington comes in and his army attacks these Hessians, they were caught completely by surprise. Number one, they're not too impressed by the uh, Continental Army up to this point in the war. They've mostly just inflicted a series of one-sided ass-whippings on it for months. Number two, it's the dead of winter. No one's going to be stupid enough to be marching around in feet of snow trying to conduct military operations. There's just no way. Certainly not a force as uh, weak in their eyes as the Continental Army. So you've got these Hessian mercenaries, these Germans, just partying down for Christmas while Washington's army is uh, crossing the Delaware and marching through the snow at them. Partying down for Christmas. And of course, if you know anything about Germans and Christmas, Germans and Christmas are like stink on crap, right? Germans and Christmas are tight. Most of the things that are associated with modern Christmas actually come from Germans. So they're partying down. Uh, they're probably in the wee hours of, of December 26, sleeping off hangovers from uh, too much holiday cheer and so on. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of the snow, here comes George Washington's army. And in my head, whenever I picture Washington's army showing up and, and catching these Hessians by surprise, I always imagine him uh, charging in saying, Merry freaking Christmas. But of course, that's probably not how it happened. But I'm not too far off because supposedly... When Washington's army was charging in at the Hessians, at least some of them were shouting quotes from the crisis by Thomas Paine as they attacked. Supposedly, some of them were yelling things like, these are the times that try men's souls. Now, it's not even that much of a battle because the Hessians are caught so off guard. They suffered a bit over a hundred casualties and then a thousand Hessians surrendered. American losses were, according to sources, three or four wounded and that's it. Now, in purely military terms, it's not that huge of a deal in the grand scheme of things, but it was absolutely crucial for morale. This was the first real big win of any size, of any significance, that Washington had had since taking command of the Continental Army, unless you want to count the, uh, the British evacuation of Boston, but you know that wasn't really like a, a battlefield victory. Now, after that success, that same afternoon, Washington recrossed the Delaware River uh, back into Pennsylvania before the British and the other Hessian units in the area could counterattack. In other words, it was a fairly large-scale hit-and-run operation. Had they waited around, they might very well have been trapped and destroyed by superior British forces in the area under General Cornwallis, who actually thought he had Washington cornered and planned on attacking him and wiping him out the next day. Of course, the next day, they found that Washington was gone. So one of the few things that Washington was pretty clever about on a regular basis was he would sometimes use nighttime operations to move his men. In fact, when Washington's forces were uh, getting, out of, getting out of Dodge, so to speak, 
there was a small detail of his men who were left behind in order to keep the fires burning and they were told to make a lot of noise through the night so that the British, who were not that far away, would be under the illusion that Washington's whole army was just camped out there waiting for them near Trenton. While in reality, the bulk of the army was slipping away and recrossing the river. Even Murray Rothbard, who mostly is very negative on George Washington, gives him credit for being clever here. Rothbard writes, quote, George Washington had won his first real military victory, and it was indeed a brilliant one. It was also the first battle he conducted in a quasi-guerrilla manner, end quote. Just a few days later, Washington crossed the Delaware River yet again into New Jersey and attacked two British regiments near Princeton, inflicting 74 casualties on them and taking 200 prisoners at very little cost in his own men. And it was another success, not quite as big as Trenton, but still it added to the morale boost and the momentum. Historian Stephen Conway writes, quote, The American victories at Trenton and Princeton caused the British considerable difficulties and may have deprived them of their best opportunity to win the war, end quote. Also, by this time, the British were starting to run into problems with just the locals in New Jersey, uh, which, you know, really was a was a fumble on their part, because when the British Army first pursued Washington into New Jersey, New Jersey was one of these colonies that had a fairly high contingent of loyalists in the population, may have had as many as half the population as loyalists, as Tories. But as the British operated across New Jersey, they apparently were not behaving very well towards the local civilians, and there were even multiple rape allegations and and horrible things like this, to the point where more and more of the population of New Jersey that had initially been, um, if you add up people who were outright loyalists and people who were just sort of neutral, probably a strong majority of the population fell into one of those two categories. Well, by the end of 1776 beginning of 1777, more and more of the population is pissed off at the British. And so they start to face little small-scale partisan attacks and things like this, which each one of them in and of themselves doesn't amount to much, but when it's, you know, a thing here, a thing there, it adds up uh, over time. And it just makes it more and more difficult for the British Army to operate in the area. Now, going into 1777, the British think they have a master plan of how to win the war and snuff out the the rebellion, but they end up doing an absolutely terrible job of coordinating their various operations. There was a British army up in Canada, and General Burgoyne, known as Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, uh, took charge of the British army up in Canada, and the plan was he would come down from there, sort of through the Hudson Valley, Uh, along the eastern extreme of New York, while General Howe, who was in New York City, would lead his army up from there. And the idea, again, like I said before, was to cut off New England. Now, again, how this would end all of the rebellion and all the rebellious sentiment throughout so many of the colonies is very questionable, but that's what these guys thought was going to happen. And the plan was the two armies, Burgoyne coming south from Canada, how coming north from New York City would meet at Albany, and then, you know, New England would be cut off from the rest of the colonies. Now, Burgoyne began this operation uh, coming down from Canada in June of 1777 with about 7,000 men, a combination primarily of British regulars and Hessian mercenaries, plus some smaller contingents of Canadians, loyalists, and they had uh, a few hundred Indians. But then... 
General Howe decided to abandon his own plan. As Burgoyne's army was coming down from Canada in New York City, General Howe decided that he'd rather send a good chunk of his army down to attack Philadelphia. And not only that, but he would send them via the water route. And not only that, he would send them kind of the long way, all the way down uh, through the Chesapeake and then up to Philadelphia. So just terrible coordination. Now, had the British operation to meet these two armies at Albany and cut off New England been successful? Would it have won the war? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is they didn't even follow their own plan to carry out the operation. Now, Burgoyne's forces coming down from Canada started off making pretty good progress. They took that Fort Ticonderoga that Ethan Allen and and, uh, Benedict Arnold had taken in 1775. They took it in July of 1777. However, all of the American soldiers who'd been garrisoned there managed to escape to fight another day. In August, General Burgoyne sent a detachment from his army under the command of a German named Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Baum into the Connecticut Valley for a supply raid on the town of Bennington, which was in territory that is today part of the state of Vermont. And there you end up with an interesting battle called the Battle of Bennington. This is an interesting one because it's fought entirely by militia, and yet they uh, win a stunning victory. Historian Don Higginbotham, in his book, The War of American Independence, writes this about the Battle of Bennington. Quote, Perhaps nothing illustrates Burgoyne's incompetence for a wilderness campaign more vividly than the composition of the force assigned to Baum, who himself spoke no English and thus was hardly a good candidate to march through a region of both friends and foes. Along with Tories, Canadians, and Indians, plus a handful of grenadiers, light infantry, and Jaegers, Baum led Prince Ludwig's horseless dragoon regiment, waddling along in their cumbersome 12-pound thigh-high jackboots and entangling their tall sabers in the underbrush. And to herald their arrival in Vermont, a German band. To oppose Baum's 800 men, General John Stark gathered the militia from the surrounding Vermont and New Hampshire villages. Yankee improvisation was at its best, for dishes, plates, and spoons were melted into musket balls. On August 16, Stark's militia companies, like angry hornets, surrounded their prey. With the militia, anything went, and on seeing an approaching column of men with the loyalist white paper badge on their hats, Baum assumed, until too late, they were friends. Suddenly assailed from all sides, Baum never had a chance, though his Germans fought bravely after his Indians and loyalists scattered, until their ammunition was spent and their commander lay mortally wounded, end quote. And this battle is still uh, celebrated and commemorated in Vermont to this day. Vermonters who know their history take great pride in this, of these amateur militiamen inflicting a pretty devastating defeat on this detachment of British and Hessian soldiers. Now, a second group of about 600 Hessians whom Burgoyne had sent to reinforce Baum's men when he received intel that Baum might face trouble, they arrived then and the New England militia whipped their asses too. By the way, some of the New Englanders who participated in these operations were uh, Ethan Allen's Green Mountain Boys. 
Now, in, in these uh, battles, Bennington and the one, I don't know if it has a name or not, uh, of the reinforcements who came after, um, in these battles, the British mercenary forces lost about 200 killed and 700 captured versus American militia losses of, get this, only about 30 killed and 40 wounded. So the militia often gets criticized for lack of discipline and for not being willing and able to go on extended campaigns far from home and so on. But the fact of the matter is the militia in, in the right situation is devastatingly effective. And Bennington is another example of that that you could add to things like Lexington and Concord. Now, I mentioned General Howe got it in his head to um, try to take Philadelphia, and he was successful in this, but of course it didn't do him any good. In September of 1777, the British succeeded in taking Philadelphia. Though it was the largest city in the colonies, and it was the meeting place of the Continental Congress, nonetheless, taking the city really in actual terms did nothing to help General Howe win the war. He failed to understand, or maybe Rothbard is right and he's deliberately trying to not win. Um, he failed to understand or was deliberately not understanding that this was not the same type of thing as a traditional European war, where if you took an enemy's capital city, he would usually just surrender to you at that point and that'd be that. That's not what this war is. This was in many ways a people's war. And the reality was that Philadelphia, though it was the largest city in the colonies, still had only about 1% of the colony's population in it. And the other 99% of the colonists didn't particularly care that Philadelphia had been taken. And those among that 99% who were of a rebellious sentiment were not willing to throw in the towel just because of the loss of one city, as, as big of a city as it was to them. Now, the British occupied Philadelphia for many months. They didn't leave until actually June of 1778. But again, that and $3 can buy you a large iced coffee at Starbucks. And the pattern was pretty much set in the north uh, for, for the war in the north that the British would win most of the battles and they would have no problem taking cities when they wanted to. But this doesn't bring them any closer to actually securing their political objective of making the colonists submit to their authority. Each time the British take someplace new, the place they left again gets, you know, reoccupied by the Continentals or by militia or whatever. They simply don't have the manpower. They would have needed millions of troops, which they did not have to actually succeed in occupying enough of North America to successfully snuff out rebellion everywhere. Now, I want to mention um, one of the most important battles of the war, the Battle of Saratoga, which, which technically is kind of like two battles, but it's oftentimes just lumped together as the Battle of Saratoga. And this has to do with that um, British army coming down from Canada under Burgoyne, the one that had sent the detachment in that got crushed at Bennington by the militia. Well, what happens to the rest of Burgoyne's army, his, his, the main bulk of his force? Well, it was being opposed by an American army led by a general named Philip Schuler. But Philip Schuler was proving to not be a very effective general. And in August of 1777, he was replaced by a general named Horatio Gates. So Gates is given the job of trying to um, oppose Burgoyne's march down through upstate New York. Gates had his army take a strong defensive position in an area called Bemis Heights, and Burgoyne, despite actually being a bit outnumbered at this point against Gates' army, in part because of what had happened to the people he sent into Vermont, um, 
Burgoyne, nonetheless, very arrogant, very confident, he moves in to stage a frontal attack on Gates's position at Bemis Heights. Now, Burgoyne had the, the reputation of being maybe a bit more aggressive than he was intelligent. He was known as Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne. He had a reputation as being kind of a drama queen and so on. And um, this ends up being his undoing, going up against Horatio Gates's army. Horatio Gates sometimes is, is criticized as not being really that great of a, of a strategist or whatever, but um, he had one thing on his side, whatever you think of him as a strategist or a tactician, he had one thing on his side that ended up being really helpful at the Saratoga campaign. And that was, he had a much better opinion of, and as a result, a much better relationship with New England militiamen than did most of the Continental Army generals, including George Washington. Most of the Continental Army generals made no secret of their contempt for militia, especially New England militia, with their reputation as being so, you know, democratic and not good at just mindlessly doing what they're told and so on. But Horatio Gates actually kind of liked them and got along with them. And this helped him in a huge way in the Saratoga campaign because a good portion of his forces in the Saratoga campaign, and, and by the end of the campaign, actually a majority of his forces, were actually militia, many of whom had come over from New England. Murray Rothbard writes this about Gates and the militia, quote, Close to his men and sharing the rigors and dangers of his troops, Gates had great confidence in the ordinary non-professional soldier, and he understood his needs and problems. His announced policy, for example, was never to call up the militia until virtually the very moment when they were needed. And as soon as they finished their short terms of duty, he did not berate them, as did Washington and others, for traitorously not re-enlisting. Instead, he thanked them courteously and sent them quickly and punctiliously home. In short, he understood that this was essentially a people's war, a popular revolution which depended for its success on mass uprising and mass support, not on European training and the European military system. Hence, the flocking by the militia of all New England to Gates's side for the forthcoming battle. End quote. Gates also wisely employed a regiment of riflemen under the famous Daniel Morgan. And these riflemen harassed the British very effectively as they approached Bemis Heights and prevented them from effectively being able to scout out the area. Now, as I said, Saratoga was really two battles. There was one on September 19, known as the Battle of Freeman's Farm, sometimes known as First Saratoga. And there was another one on October 7th, known as Bemis Heights, sometimes referred to as Second Saratoga. Now, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, General Benedict Arnold, who was under the command of General Gates, uh, led a contingent of Americans off of Bemis Heights to intercept a British attack at a place called Freeman's Farm. Daniel Morgan's riflemen were a significant part of the forces that went on this um, that went into this battle, and they did a lot to inflict casualties on the British, especially among the officers whom the riflemen would target deliberately. And of course, the British considered this cheating and ungentlemanly and so on, but these frontier riflemen did not care. Now, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, technically the British won because they did eventually take their objective, but it was one of those victories, yet again, like so many in this war, where the British technically won by, by taking the objective on the field, but they suffered horrific casualties. In fact, similar to Bunker Hill, the British actually suffered 
at least twice as many casualties as the Americans at the Battle of Freeman's Farm. Historian Stephen Conway says of this battle, quote, This was a Pyrrhic victory, if ever there was one, end quote. Nonetheless, despite the costliness of this quote-unquote victory at Freeman's Farm, General Burgoyne remained confident and awaited resupply and reinforcements that, unfortunately for him, never came. Meanwhile, the militia continued to flock from New England to join Gates' army, and Morgan's riflemen continued to harass and snipe at Burgoyne's army almost constantly. The climax of the Saratoga campaign really uh, occurred at what becomes known as the Battle of Bemis Heights. Several weeks after the Battle of Freeman's Farm, Burgoyne held a council of war with his general, with his generals, most of whom urged him to retreat. But flashy gentleman Johnny Burgoyne thought that was dishonorable, and instead he decided, even though again by this point he's outnumbered, to attack the American main force which he does, what becomes known as the Battle of Bemis Heights. After a brutal day of fighting back and forth, Burgoyne ended up having to pull back, having suffered 700 casualties to the Americans' 150. And again, Daniel Morgan's riflemen played a very important role uh, sniping at the enemy mercilessly, especially the enemy officers. There was one key point in this battle where a British brigadier named Simon Fraser was bravely rallying his men, trying to get them to regroup when they were starting to retreat. And the story is that Benedict Arnold told Daniel Morgan that that guy, General Fraser, needed to go. And Morgan supposedly delegated this job to a young expert rifleman from the frontier of Pennsylvania named Timothy Murphy who was only in his mid-twenties at the time, but he was supposedly like one of the best of the best of Morgan's riflemen. Morgan supposedly said something to young Timothy Murphy about, uh, along the lines of, I admire that man's bravery, but unfortunately, he has to die. So the story is that Murphy climbs up into a tree and took aim at General Fraser from a distance of about 300 yards, which was a hell of a shot with a flintlock 18th century musket rifled musket his first shot was a miss second shot hit the general's horse and then his third shot hit the general himself mortally wounding him in the stomach now imagine the skill you need with an iron sighted flintlock rifle to fire and reload three shots from up in a tree and still manage to hit your target in his book, Daniel Morgan, Revolutionary Rifleman, historian Don Higginbotham references briefly Timothy Murphy using a double-barreled rifle. And I'm not sure what to make of this because I've not seen or heard of double-barreled Kentucky rifles at this time. I've, I've seen and heard of double-barreled Kentucky rifles from decades after the American Revolution, but not one from that era. So I don't know... You know, where where um, Hagenbotham got that information, whether it's true or not. I've actually seen a double barreled Kentucky rifle from uh, from a bit later that was a double barrel over and under and rotated the barrels so that you would fire the barrel on the top and then rotate so that the bottom barrel went up to the top and then fire that. And uh, I'll see if I can find it. I'll, it's one of the things I'll put a link to in the show notes if I can locate it. It's pretty cool. Now, 
What was Timothy Murphy actually using? Was there such a thing as a double-barreled Kentucky rifle available to him at that time even? I don't know. I don't know. But um, still, if the story's true, he fired three shots. So even if he's using a double barrel, he had to reload at least once. Again, muzzle-loading flintlock rifle up in a tree. Blows the mind. Now, this story has uh, long been told and retold in many of the books about this battle or about Morgan's Rifleman. But there's, uh, and I just found out about this and haven't had a chance to, to really examine the book. There's a fairly recent book entitled Saratoga, A Military History of the Decisive Campaign of the American Revolution by a guy named John Lysander, who discounts this story. He says that uh, as far as I know, what Luzander says is that General Fraser definitely was killed in this battle, but that Luzander doesn't believe that Timothy Murphy did it, that uh, this, this whole story was invented many years later. But again, I've not had the chance to actually read this book by Luzander, so I don't know for sure you know, what his arguments and evidence are. So at this point, I'll say I don't have an educated opinion one way or another. I'll say that the Timothy Murphy story is in a lot of sources. However, as we all know, oftentimes stories that are not true get told and retold and retold uh, quite a long time before they finally get decisively uh, refuted. But regardless of who actually killed General Fraser, uh, whether it was Timothy Murphy or not, it's a cool story, and uh, someone killed him, so you know maybe it was one of Morgan's riflemen, most likely anyway. And it's definitely true that uh, Burgoyne's army got their butts kicked at Bemis Heights. So after retreating, Burgoyne regrouped and waited for Gates to attack him, hoping that Gates would be dumb enough to attack him in open battle, but uh, Gates was not dumb enough. Instead, he surrounded Burgoyne's army. And then on October 17th, surrounded and outnumbered, General Burgoyne surrendered his force of, by that time, a bit over 5,000 troops. His surrender amounted to about one-fifth of all British troops in North America at the time. So this was a battle that was not just like Trenton, a, a, a important symbolic and morale-boosting victory. This was like a serious military victory in logistical and manpower terms. During the battles leading up to Burgoyne's surrender, his men had suffered about a thousand casualties, counting both killed and wounded, versus only about 300 for the American side. Historian Stephen Conway writes, quote, The Americans had knocked a British field army out of the war. Never again would they view their enemy with quite such awe. American loyalists were correspondingly depressed. The British themselves were also dispirited, end quote. Even more important than all that, though, was the impact on international opinion. Because one of the things that came uh, from the Battle of Saratoga and the massive American victory there was that it finally tipped France towards formally entering the war on the side of the Americans. France had been sympathetic to the American war effort, not because they believed in the values of the Declaration of Independence or anything like that. France at this time was still an absolute monarchy. But the French absolutely hated the British and had a long rivalry with them, and the British had won most of the wars in recent decades before this, and so France was looking for revenge. So that's all. It's just a matter of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But of course, nobody wants to back someone who's doomed to lose, so for a while, France, uh, the government of France had been kind of, you know, inclined towards the Americans, but not quite willing to take the last step of officially entering the war and, and supporting, you know, a, a potential loser. But after Saratoga, 
America doesn't look like it's doomed definitely to lose. So in February of 1778, treaties of alliance between the United States and France were concluded. And in June of 1778, France officially entered the war. By the way, the Spanish would follow suit about a year after that. And this would ultimately mean massive military, naval, logistical, and financial assistance. And then also, um, I believe a little bit after the Spanish, the Dutch joined the war as well on the side of the Americans. The Spanish and French in particular, in particular helped out not just by um, sending you know, material assistance, but they also attacked British possessions in other parts of the world, especially the Caribbean, that caused the British to have to divert some of their forces from the North American colonies to defend some of these valuable, valuable possessions in places like the Caribbean. And so, in other words, it prevented the British from being able to concentrate their military assets on the 13 colonies in North America as much as they might have preferred. So it was a massive help. Even a lot of leaders at the time said that this was crucial. And if you look historically, independence wars that get outside assistance stand a much better chance of success than independence wars you know, where, the, where the rebels do not get some kind of significant outside help. So with the victory at Saratoga, 1777 definitely ended uh, with an up note for the Americans. But of course, the war ain't over by a long shot, and many of the American soldiers still had hell to face, both on the battlefield and off. And one of those was, of course, famously at Valley Forge. As 1777 was winding down, Washington selected Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, about 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia, to hunker down his 12,000-strong army for the winter. And keep in, mi- keep in mind, at this point, due to logistical problems and shortages, only about a third of Washington's men even have footwear, and some were told were leaving bloody footprints behind them as they marched around. These men faced shortages of food, and other supplies, as well as cold, damp conditions, all of which led to malnourishment and, of course, accompanying all that, outbreaks of disease, including such nasty ones as typhus and smallpox. So these guys really suffered in the winter of 1777 to 78. The logistical situation was just abysmal. And in March, Washington appointed one of his right-hand generals, a man named Nathaniel Green, who I'll probably talk more about next time, um, to be quartermaster general, the guy overall in charge of supply in the army. And Green did definitely the best he could with what he had, and he did a much better job than those who came before him. But even so, there just was only so much supply um, to go around. And also, you know, by March of 1778, a lot of the worst of Valley Forge was already over by that point. Also in 1778 is when some supplies started to come from France, which helped out as well. However, again, this was all too late for many because by the spring of 1778, approximately 2,500 of the soldiers at Valley Forge had died, which is about 20% of those who went in. Now, before I wrap up, I just want to mention an interesting document that was written, um, I think in kind of the middle of 1777 when things were still looking pretty 
terrible for the American cause, and it seemed like to many that it was just a matter of time until they were reconquered. It's a British government document entitled Considerations on the Great Question, What is Fit to be Done with America? It was written by the British colonial undersecretary William Knox before the Battle of Saratoga, at a time when the rebel cause seemed pretty much doomed to fail. Naturally, the plan was focused on, once these uh, rebels are crushed, how do you reform, quote-unquote, American society in a way to prevent any future rebellions? And here are the changes that Knox proposed in this report. And it's very interesting and revealing because it shows the pillars on which British state power rested at the time. First change was to make the Church of England the state church in all of the 13 colonies, what was called back then the established church, meaning it gets tax money and other privileges that other churches don't get. Next, Parliament would have uncontested tax authority over the colonies in every way whatsoever. Also, it proposed a hereditary aristocracy be established in America. It also called for a permanent standing army to be garrisoned in the 13 colonies. And of course, it called for civilian disarmament. The end of the militias and the document said, quote, the arms of all the people should be taken away nor should any foundry or manufactory of arms, gunpowder, or warlike stores be ever suffered in America, nor should any gunpowder, lead, arms, or ordnance be imported into it without license, End quote. Basically, the plan was very similar to what had previously been inflicted on Ireland in the 17th and 18th century at the hands of people like Oliver Cromwell, William of Orange, and James Stewart. Of course, we know that since the British lost the war, William Knox and his government didn't get their way. But the document still is interesting, I think, because it reveals how far the British intended to tighten their grip if they won. And it shows what was at stake from the American rebel perspective. And of course, if the Brits had won, most, if not all, of the men that today Americans think of as the founding fathers along with many other less famous rebels, would have found themselves facing traitors' deaths. And of course, if the Brits had won today's history books, because remember, history is always written by the victors, uh, today's history books would read quite differently than they do. Next time, we'll look at what happens in the latter stages of the war when the action shifts more to the south from roughly 1778 through the end of fighting. So I hope you'll tune in for that. Like I always say, if you have any comments about this particular show, this particular episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section at my website, profcj.org. That's P-R-O-F-C-J.org. And I always have show notes there. Um, I try to have some links to things. Um, I have my, you know, Amazon links, which are usually books and things relevant to what I've been talking about, oftentimes things I've referenced in the episode. So definitely check out my website if you have not. You can also email me questions, comments, whatever, feedback. It's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter, follow things there. You can subscribe to the show in a bunch of ways. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on Stitcher. 
places like that. You can also email subscribe to the website. If you go to my website, there's a place to put in your email there. And what will happen is I promise I won't send you any junk or whatever. I don't do that but you'll get an email automatically generated every time there's a new post on my website, which usually means a new podcast episode has been published. Um, So that's another way you can subscribe. Remember, there are several ways you can help out the show and support the show. One is spreading the word, of course. That's always appreciated. Also consider leaving reviews or ratings in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. Um, That's cool. That might, you know, cause more people to give the show a listen, and that'll help me grow. You can also help the show financially, and I'm not, you know, super comfortable being a beggar, but I guess I I have to be at this point. Um, I really, really, really could use a little bit of financial help at this point. I'm sure you noticed it's been about two weeks since my last episode, and part of it is because I've had some um, family and personal stuff I won't get into in huge detail, but um, it's been preventing me from working on on the podcast as much as I've wanted to the past couple of weeks. And it's also unfortunately cost me a fair amount of money uh, without getting too specific. Let's say uh, one of my kids had some health issues. Uh, Thankfully, nothing, you know, remotely life threatening or anything like that, but something that did cause me to, um, you know, have to drop some coin and also have to be distracted from working on the Dangerous History podcast as much as I otherwise would. And then to make matters worse, you know, I'm teaching summer school right now. And uh, one of my summer school classes, one of my sections that I was going to teach got canceled because of low enrollment, which on the one hand means that for the next few weeks, at least I'll have probably a little more time than I would normally to work on the Dangerous History podcast, which is cool. But it also means I'm losing some money because it means I'm, I'm getting paid over the summer for one fewer uh, courses than I originally was trying for. And it's just one of those things. It seems like the last few years, just overall student numbers in summer school in general are way down. Um, I hear this from many of my colleagues. It's not just me. This is, I forget the second or third year in a row that I've had one of my summer courses get canceled because of low enrollment. So, you know, good news is I should have some more time than, than typical. Um, Hopefully, this will be the, the last time for a while that I go two weeks without an episode. And I really do want the show to grow and be a success and so on. But the downside is it means I'm going to be short on dough. So anything you can spare, any amount, I really appreciate it. Uh, those who have already helped the show out financially, a thousand thank yous. It's a big help. It really is. Ways you can help out the show financially. One is to donate directly via PayPal. On my website, you'll see the donate uh, page there, profcj.org slash donate. You can also donate their uh, Bitcoin as well. And you can help the show out financially also by purchasing Amazon items by first going through the links found on my website. Those are affiliate links, and I get a little cut from Amazon on those transactions. So I hope you'll consider helping me out if you can. I really appreciate it. And if you don't have any dough to, to donate or whatever, I understand too. I've, I've been there many times myself. Um, please, though, try to spread the word if you can. Help me out that way. Any type of help, I'm very grateful. So thank you, as always, for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. <laughs>